welcome to episode 249 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Lydia Creech. Nathan Smith. And in today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be concluding our quick Patreon pick series with 1942's King's Row, which was picked by Maggie, uh, another lovely Patreon patron and we uh appreciate all of you and if you have not you know patronized us on patron patreon we're gonna have some fun stuff coming up i I can't patreon patron is like it's like peter piper picked the patch of pickled peppers um you're doing great which i said much clearer than (laughs) patreon patron um but uh if you've not we have some cool stuff uh coming up we're going to talk about it at the end of the podcast uh, since we're going to be recording uh an episode for the patreon page afterwards so uh yeah stick around if you have not joined we have some fun stuff happening on that uh but let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week and lydia i'm going to kick it off with some new releases that you and i both saw uh, this past week, the first one seems to be the very popular movie that mm-hmm. I guess not many people saw in theaters, but <laughs> <laughs> has gained some traction as a popular uh, Twitter internet movie, and that is Book Smart, which is the directorial debut of Olivia Wilde. It stars Caitlin Dever and Beanie Feldstein, uh, among uh, many other actors, including Jason Sudeikis, uh, Diana Silvers, and Billy, Billy Lord. <laughs> and yeah, Billy Lord. And uh, Paige, Paige wrote about it on the site a couple weeks ago because um, she got caught it in an advanced screening. But pretty much the movie follows these two t- uh, teenagers who are about to graduate from high school. They've been very academically focused. And on the eve of their graduation, they decide that, well, we should you know work less and play a little bit more and are determined to go to the big party that's happening the night before graduation. Uh, and, and the movie follows their journey to that party. Um, Lydia, you were if for those who don't follow you on Letterboxd, <laughs> you generally do not give star ratings to stuff. You usually will give like a heart or just nothing at all. And I was I laughed because I saw when you watched Booksmart that it, you got you gave it five stars. So I knew that this must like enter this astronomical plan of uh of appreciation for this movie so i'm curious what you uh what you made of book smart and what made you uh i guess give it a rating i <laughs> i mean a it was really really funny the whole way through and our my theater was pretty packed i don't know what the deal was i didn't know that it wasn't doing well at the box office based on my theater going experience um and there was laughter that's good though. like consistently the whole way through um and I also really, really like movies about gir- best friends because I don't feel like there are enough of those. <laughs> There's something very special, I think, about that period, like your high school best friend when you're a girl. Like they're pretty weird. They're like codependent. <laughs> they're codependent, I'd say. And nobody likes them and they kind of use that like oh we're best friends because nobody likes us and also we're better than everybody (laughs) and i related which may be bad (laughs) i really enjoyed the uh like i was trying i I heard it described on another podcast but they're like it was almost a battle of compliments when they would just start like you know start assaulting each other with these compliments it was kind of it was a little it was very endearing because instead of like you know a throwdown of insults it was just like you're so beautiful you have no idea and she's like thank you you too and it just went on like that for like a minute 
like it's endearing because they're all wrapped up in each other, not in a romantic way. It's just like this very specific girl best friend way. <laughs> and it felt really true. I don't know if Olivia Wilde had a best friend like that. Or I think the script has been around a, few, a bit, different writers. Uh, but they captured something, I think. There was like, uh, th- that's just one thing I want to mention. There's four writers on this. That's, I mean, they, and it was great, all women, but like, it doesn't, it should take four people to write this movie anyway. I, that's a whole, it's a whole digression. But uh, what it, it, one of the things that I think a lot of people have been, um, you know talking about with this movie is the director you know kind of the the director vision that olivia wilde brings it's a very it can be very you know visually appealing and uh the way that she captures the just the kind of non-stop wittiness of it i mean what, what did you make of, of her direct you know directing yeah. style there's a couple of like little fantasy sequences that are not fantasy sequences one of them's like this really gorgeous underwater pool shot that's ethereal <laughs> I don't know if that's a good word. it's at a dumb teen party but it's ethereal and but there's the another shot that also made me laugh really hard but I think was directed well is this fantasy that uh Amy I think it's the character's name yeah the Beanie Feldstein character the Beanie Feldstein's character like when she enters the party I think for the first it's like this weird musical like <laughs> musical number it goes like for a whole bit and it's a little awkward and then it keeps going so you're still laughing but it's well done it's just well it's almost like mocking the uh because they would have those moments in like something like la la land where they would just like break into this like you know unrealistic dance number and it's it's something like that so it feels like you were in this uh you know la la land-esque movie musical and it's like no it's just this she's excited because her crush is here (laughs) so i really liked those sort of touches and i will also say i mentioned like it's funny the whole way through but i think she also does land on really emotional weird moments like they have a big blow-up fight like that's i don't think that's a spoiler because that's kind of like you're waiting for it to happen the whole movie because it's um and i liked the touch i guess maybe i shouldn't spoil it Anyway, that's handled really well. And then when they're like saying at the end of the movie, uh, kind of wrapping everything up, I thought that was like really emotionally well done too. <laughs> I like the, I like how it ends on like this kind of uh, accelerated note, rather because because the, the the scene before is much more somber and like the, you know the one character is going away for a year and the other was, one's staying back. And um, I was thinking of like fucking Lady Bird. <laughs> Like, yeah, and you then have the mom like crying in the car. And it's not quite that. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't leave you on like this kind of somber note. It leaves you on because after she leaves and she's like cry, uh, the Beanie Feldstein character is like driving and kind of tearing up. She's and, gonna do it. Like she's yeah. gonna do the mom from Lady Bird. But <laughs> and then Caitlin Dever jumps in front. She's like, I can be the last one on the plane. You want to get pancakes? She's like, Fuck yeah! And then it just ends. So um, I really I, like that. I enjoyed Booksmart as well. It 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 it, it does it. it for having four people writing it uh it's very it, it does have great uh well-written moments 
moments. It's uh, very joke heavy. You know, it, they're, they're throwing a lot of uh, great lines, especially Caitlin Dever and Beanie Feldstein are just kind of tossing lines out at a, on a consistent basis. Uh, I mentioned Billy Lord at the beginning. She gave, gives just this wonderful, uh, you know, bizarro <laughs> performance as this uh, almost spirit like uh, rich girl who just start, keeps appearing in places. <laughs> She's on a lot of drugs. A lot um, of drugs. <laughs> the one thing I do want to talk about, because this was one of the takeaways I kind of had, and I was listening to the Slate Spoilers uh, special podcast afterwards, and they had a really interesting mm-hmm. discussion about this as well. Um, and I'm curious to get your perspective on this, Lydia, is this movie has a very strange um, concept of class in it. Okay, uh, Allison Wilmore wrote a really good she did, article yeah, that, for BuzzFeed, too. That, that as well. So kind of to, to set up a little bit of the beginning of the movie, um, the there's this scene where uh, these three characters are trashing Beanie Feldstein's character in the bathroom, and they don't realize that she's in the bathroom at the same time. And so she comes out of the stall and is, like, washing her hands and kind of sets up this, you know... You, you know, you can say whatever you want, but you're going to, you know, not be doing anything in life and I'm going to Yale next year. And then it's revealed that the three, they, they kind of all three go, well, I'm one of them's like, I'm going to Yale. And the other one's like, I'm going to Stanford. And the other one's like, I'm going to work, you know, for and get 60K to work at Google next year. And so the the, the beginning kind of uh, breaking moment for uh, her character is that even though all of these other characters that she kind of thought were the uh, underachieving, just one of the parts Part of the whole time jockey kind of characters even though they they live that lifestyle they also are going to these like prestigious universities they're going to like georgetown and columbia and all these places and uh she that's what kind of leads to the whole we're gonna go to this party because we've all we've been doing is working you know working 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 to achieve this and we clearly missed out on something um but it's just this very strange uh like my yeah you know I don't know. It, it seems it seems it's it, it, like I get that it's 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 a movie and there's going to and it's a teen movie and you're and you have these elements of, uh, you know, that aren't very realistic. But it it just feels like it's very much in this uh, like the, the most fantasy sequence of this entire thing is that you have all of these kids it, again, We're all going to like upper, Ivy League. Yeah. yeah. Upper middle class, uh, you know, well-off kids who are going to these Ivy League schools and I don't know. It, it 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 has this whole class bubble that it never really takes the time to in you know interrogate very much, and not saying that this movie should have done that, but at the same time, I feel like they they the Slate podcast did a really good job. They said that it's a it kind of is a movie that sands off the edges of the narrative, and so there's never really any true like threat in the narrative, and I kind of feel like that I, I kind of feel that way about the movie. Because it's like you have this big kind of elephant in the room when it comes to class and the and the characters that are being portrayed in this movie, but it, it constantly sands the edges. But I mean, does that did you get any of that, or did you feel that way? Um, I definitely felt that way after reading Allison Wilmore's articles. The thing about Booksmart is it like really wants to imagine a high school experience that's a little bit kinder than I think it actually is, especially for girls who are like. Uh, Caitlin Dever and Bernie Beanie felt like uh, it's like it turns out her classmates really aren't so horrible they're actually like the jocks are nice the theater kids are nice Uh, and that's another that's another weird thing everybody's nice everybody's not nice (laughs) 
<laughs> like, like, <laughs> like, I'm like, yes, you in in a, in a theoretical world, you would love everybody to be nice, but like, even the the pizza delivery guy whose car they get into, who they later learn is like a strangler, is nice to them. Like, it's weird. Um, so I, it's a little bit like this fantasy thing, and part of that fantasy thing is ignoring class, because like getting into those schools, I, it's not a. Like the movie is like suggesting, oh, it's a mistake that they didn't have any fun and studied all the time. But like, mm, unless you come from a certain background, you you don't get Definitely, into yeah. Yale. Like, sorry. And, and that's was that was the other thing I had a question about is you meet Caitlin Dever's character's parents who are played by Lisa Kudrow and Will Forte, and they kind of have this they kind of have this like you know much more uh, Norman Rockwell family vibe to them, even though they're very cool with her being uh, out you know and everything, but. You never meet Beanie Feldstein's parent or her, her mom. She, you can tell that she definitely lives, um, you know, socioeconomically, right? yeah, lower than Caitlin Dever or any of the other students uh, in terms of like the houses that you see throughout the movie. And it's just like I felt like that should have been even more of an element of her character rather than oh she's just this super smart you know focused girl. Like yeah, there's a reason why she's that way rather than that's just her personality. I feel like that probably was also a factor in you know her being so focused i saw someone describe uh her character as like a latchkey kid like she's probably left alone by herself a lot and got some sort of complex especially going to a high school with people who are like pretty bougie like (laughs) like nice houses nice things nice cars as teenagers and she doesn't have a car like her best friend picks her up and takes her to school every day so I'm so it's also born out of this like have to prove myself have to work and then it's just like no that was wrong I mean they're cool they're still cool and I'm like yeah in this movie I really like that but (laughs) I'm still not knocking any stars off of it though because I do not think there are enough movies about best friends (laughs) so it's still no it's it's still a, a really charming uh and worthwhile movie to go check out at the movie theater so uh i would recommend checking out book smart the other one uh i want to talk about real quickly um Paige mentioned it last week but john wick chapter three parabellum came out uh <laughs> recently and uh i in terms of the three john wicks i did i think i still like the second one maybe the okay. most uh behind this this one i would say that is the second best uh the okay. thing I, I think the thing I liked about this, and I heard I've heard some people talk about it, is that um, you kind of shed uh, in terms of the John Wick mythology, you kind of shed the uh, like the the reasons why he's in this situation. You yeah. know, in the first one, it's like they killed his dog and stole his car, and then the second one, it's like it kind of is a little bit of a repeat of that. And in this one, it's just. They're after him. He's got to kill people, and he and at this point, he's he has no like reservations about the about the killing. He's just like, this is just I'm stuck in this hell. Like this is just who I am. Um, and then he dives right back in. Like I guess I live he here just, now. Yeah, he just dives right right back in. Um, I felt like it's a pretty lengthy one. It's a, it's like two uh-huh. hours and ten minutes. Um, I think it moves pretty well. I I, I thought it, like I didn't I had no problems with the uh, with the runtime. Um, it has some. Really, I, I think my my favorite sequence was the scene in the hotel with him and Halle Berry's character, which uh-huh. is and the shot murder really, dogs. Yeah, her, like the way that well, one Halle Berry's really remarkable in that she 
like the physicality that she shows like you know next to Keanu is is great but also yeah you have this element of the two dogs that are jumping around and grabbing people at the same time um but I don't know it just seemed like it was missing a little bit of something that I thought like the other one had especially the last one had um but what did you make of John Wick 3 well the thing that I noticed about John Wick 3 and the thing that gave I think me and Andrew a bunch of pause about John Wick 2 was (laughs) this sort of tension between this underground assassin world and all of these like oblivious citizens or whatever and like I I, like I got very concerned in the crowd scenes like I think it's the oculus whatever that train station is Um, like I did not like I was like oh this is fun they're really good but like what if a stray bullet just like murders a civilian fuck uh but (laughs) john wick 3 i think totally eliminates that tension because it's just like everybody's everybody yes like the conspiracy (laughs) grows and i'm like oh i don't have to worry about fucking anybody they knew what they signed up for and also like a bunch of the fight scenes are weirdly more isolated like the first fight scene he has is like just in a library like the stacks so nobody's around it and then like an antique store and then the desert so (laughs) it it took it's like way further into this like fantasy world building space. And I think we're losing that like commentary a little bit on violence, which is fine. If they're not fucking interested in that, don't be interested in that. But well, it was interesting. I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about that. They view John wick less as like an action movie and more of like a slapstick comedy. Um, because there are moments that like are kind of played almost like you're watching like a Keaton film, like played for a laugh. Like, um, I'm ch- thinking like the one, cause the one, the thing I was going to add to your point was that they almost ditch some of the gunplay to an extent in this one. Like you have one sequence where he's fighting pretty exclusively with like axes and knives, <laughs> which was kind of surreal. Uh, you also have, I mean, you mentioned the first one. He kills, uh, shout out to Boban, the uh, center for the Philadelphia 76ers, and he gets killed with a book. Um, but yeah, it gets a little bit more creative in that sense. Um, but I, I guess, yeah, you, you, you can view it as like a slapstick comedy because there are just elements that are played that are kind of just absurd in the, in like the, the way that they're, you know, framed, um, in the way that, that, uh, Keanu reacts to them. I mean, I'm thinking of like the, the whole sequence near the end of the movie where he's in like the glass area uh-huh. and he's fighting the two guys from the raid and they're just <laughs> like, Hey, we're super big fans. This is really fun. And he, there's like one sequence where they keep pushing him and I swear he runs into like five uh-huh. panels of just glass like over, and it's just it's like over and over. Psh, psh, psh. Yeah. And it's just, and it's just, you know, repetitive and it, and it just it garnered a laugh in my showing just because it was like, it kept like he kept getting thrown into him. Um, but I don't know. Do, do you see any reading of it as like a slapstick comedy? Um, I actually thought it was maybe less funny than chapter two also, but this one did have another send up of, I think it was Buster Keaton very briefly in times square. Is that where he is? I don't know where he is. Very brief shot. And also I don't think he says more than like 40 words. Like, the John Wick character just keeps talking less and less and less, like really leaning into like basically being silent. Uh. <laughs> yeah, which is which which is fine because I think that 
uh, a lot Who of what it? people <laughs> well yeah well a lot of what people are impressed with in terms because i saw somebody who had this thread going about how keanu reeves isn't a good actor and i was like well he's i'm like that's not true like the thing that makes him such a great actor in in terms of like the john wick movies is that he's all doing it like physically it's all like it's it's silent movie acting you know that's what that's what the whole you know he's having to you know that's 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 just how he's and so yeah you may read it as oh he's just kind of mumbling stuff or you know spitting out these very trite you know hardly written lines yeah. but, very but yeah but you're just like you have those and it's kind of fun but at the same time the most of the time he's just re, it's you're watching him kind of react and take the hits like, like in that like the way he reacts during the knives act sequence is really because he's just having to pop different places and they're throwing these knives and it's just it's a very claustrophobic sequence um that sequence was weird because i don't think it had any soundtrack behind it all it the didn't. other fight scenes did but that one was just like the sound of glass breaking and punches landing and like the Clean swish of metal. clothing. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, this is a thing that I yeah. noticed. Um, but yeah, I I, I I enjoyed it. I was one of the, I, I'll be happy to check out the rest of these series. I'm going to watch the fourth one. Yeah, I don't give a the shit. The fourth one that. sounds kind of interesting because, the, you know, I guess, spoiler alert, they set up like for the fourth one where it's... I will not watch the TV show. No, I won't either. But I, the fourth one is like set up where, uh, G, you know, John Wick and the Lawrence Fishburne character are going to just like tear down the uh, hierarchy of this whole assassins thing. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds awesome. That sounds super fun. I'm <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. I'm here for that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, John Wick Chapter 3, it is in theaters now, so yeah, check it out. Uh, Lydia, real briefly, you just caught the new Godzilla movie, so give us a quick rundown on that one. Okay, I will keep it brief, I because A, I don't remember a goddamn thing about the 2014 one, which this is a sequel to, apparently. Um, some of the... Then the characters are back, like Ken Watanabe, I think, is one of the scientists from the first one. And Sally Hawkins. The plot is there's some Sally Hawkins is back, although she gets stepped on and dies like pretty early on. It's very inglorious. Oh, God. <laughs> and like, I just, that's what happens. And I was just like, oh, bye. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Well, that ruined uh, that for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but Vera Farmiga is a survivor from the 2014 attack in San Francisco, and she gets and she lost a kid, and I guess it makes her kind of weird. And so she gets this plan in her head that she's gonna wake up all the other Titans. They've discovered that there's more. There's more than just Godzilla and the other one that he fought. There's a bunch. And she's like, well, we're going to do an extinction thing. Fuck, fuck the people. And we're going to just turn it around. And it'll be fine. Except it's not fine. Bunch of monsters. Uh, and she's got another kid that she changed. Anyway, um, I mostly just wanted to watch it because I wanted to see Godzilla and Mothra and Rhoda, like the other monsters i'm not got a huge background in godzilla i haven't seen most of them i've seen the original the 2014 one shin godzilla and this but i just i don't know i said this off mic but i i I don't think americans should be making godzilla movies (laughs) like we have the budget we can do really awesome special effects godzilla looks great he's thick um (laughs) he's a big boy (laughs) And the monsters look great. Like Mothra 
is a mouth monster. Uh, if you don't know, it gets like some really, I guess, supposed to be uh, glamour spectacle shots, like her wings light up and it's very pretty. And then you're like, oh, it's the sublime, monstrous, but beautiful. Sure. <laughs> like, that's fine. It looks great. I, I don't think they're really handling like what Godzilla is. I don't know what cultural fear these Godzilla movies speak to. Like they make some noise about climate change and population control and like an extinction event for humans. And I'm like, blah, 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 whatever. That's fine. This is, I have a problem with this story because a white lady is like, oh, we're just going to wipe out a bunch of the Earth's population. You know who that means? Poor brown people. Like, <laughs> mm, sit down, lady. <laughs> but I, again, Americans. <laughs> I, you know, watch it for the monsters. I like, I was able to see all of the action. I think there was enough monster. Like, they weren't hiding the monster because the monster looked kind of shitty. Looked great. So that's fine. Whatever happened to the uh, King Kong crossover thing? It's that, still that happening. That was a thing, right? That was going to happen. It's still happening, no? yeah. Well, yeah. well it wasn't in this, so I don't... Oh, okay. I thought I was going to sing King Kong. Yeah, um, directed by Adam Wingard, I believe. Uh, no. Okay. Well, he's not in this one, so <laughs> I don't know what I... He doesn't have an age of monsters in this scene. Or at least King Kong doesn't. Cool. Right. Right. So, so, Godzilla, what so, are we afraid of? So you're just like, go see Booksmart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you're going to go to the movies, go see Booksmart. Cool. Uh, Nathan, you had a movie you want to talk about. Yeah. Um, a semi-recent release that has, I guess, been sort of percolating for a while. You know, did this festival circuit and recently got a theatrical release. Um, it's the new movie from the French filmmaker Olivier Assias, um, nonfiction. Um, Assias is a filmmaker who I, I, I like a good deal. Um, I've seen maybe seven or eight of his movies and um, like most of them, um, I really, really like Demon Lover, um, Irma Vet. I keep meaning to see that. Um, you know, Personal Shopper's pretty good. Um, you know, that was his most recent movie with Kristen Stewart, which um, is, is on Netflix and um, pretty accessible, and a lot of people may have seen that. Um, this movie is kind of a... I guess sort of a, I don't know, it's not like a return to form, you know, I don't, and people say that a lot of times about movies and they're not a return to anything or I don't know. Um, but this is also, but it's, it's kind of noteworthy, I guess, maybe that this is his first like French, you know, totally in French movie um, since 2012, something in the air. Um, the last two of his movies, Personal Shopper and Clouds of Sils Maria, both star Kristen Stewart and are sort of like international co-productions um, that are largely in English, um, even though they're set in Europe. Um, so this movie is like kind of the like platonic ideal of like a French movie i don't know like i think that when like people that's fair when, you know when people who are like oh i don't want to watch a movie with subtitles you know not to disparage anybody but you know if if we all know that there are people in this world who who don't want to watch 
movies from France. You're missing out. And uh, this is kind of like, I feel like your worst nightmare if you're that type of person. <laughs> like, if, if, if subtitles show up and you, like, roll your eyes um, and you don't want to hear about, like, affairs between French intellectuals, um, like, then this is not the film for you. Um, but luckily, a good deal of people who listen to this podcast like those kinds of movies. So maybe this is exactly what you're looking for. Um, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a weird movie because... Basically, it's about um, the publishing industry. You know, LCS is often sort of looking at media industries from like digital pornography um, and hentai and demon lover, you know, to filmmaking, French filmmaking in Irma Vep, fashion and personal shopper. This movie is all about publishing and it sort of uh, takes place in a kind of slippery time. It doesn't exactly place when it um, is set. It seems, you know, sort of like the contemporary moment, but basically everything that's being talked about in the movie is, is kind of happened a few years ago. You know, it's, it's basically at this sort of moment where people are very worried about the rise of eBooks and they're super concerned that it's going to, that, that e-readers are going to totally overwhelm, um, hardback and paperback and that it's just going to totally cease to exist within like 10 or 20 years. Um, so that sort of anxiety is, is, is hovering over the movie. Our main character is this literary editor, Alon, who has had this long time working relationship with a novelist named Leonard, um, who's played by an actor who some of you may know uh, from um, the movie Eden by Olivia Asias's actually former partner Mia Hansen Love um, in that movie this guy played um, a character who was like a big defender of uh, Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls um, in this movie he is a um, author of autofiction who's difficult to work with, very stubborn and opinionated, and also um, a little bit problematic, it seems. You know, he has a tendency to write about his personal affairs and offend the women um, in his life. And then, you know, when people at, at Q&As and, and at book reading sort of address the concerns of the women in his life and the, and the things that they've said publicly about uh, his books, you know, he's sort of acts aloof and indifferent and you know, pretends to not know about these these supposed criticisms of himself. Um, so, so he's like uh, quit. He's like Tarantino at yeah, camp. basically. You know, he's just sort of like it's like you clearly know what you're doing, dude, but you're just like dodging these questions. Um, so, you know, this is a guy sort of of uh, this novelist Leonard. You know, is clearly like of a different. You know, he's he's not an old guy, but he's of a different generation. You know, he the world is sort of like doesn't have a place for his sort of like male chauvinist bullshit, you know, um, quite so much anymore. Um, and, um, Alan is, is sleeping with a colleague, uh, named Laura, who's much younger than him. And she is totally invested in the death of print and has totally staked her, her future and her career on the ascendancy of e-readers and of, of phones and tablets. And she is ready, willing and able to, um, you know, slip a tab of cyanide to the, to, um, printed paper. You know, she is just like ready to be done with books. Um, so the whole movie is kind of dominated by discussions between this group of characters, including um, Alon's wife, who is having an affair with Leonard. Uh, her name is Selena, and she is a stage actress who is on a 
kind of a prestige TV thriller about a like a hostage negotiator. Um, so there is like a moment where you see Asayas kind of do his take on like prestige television. You know, there's sort of like a, a brief like five minute or so scene from this show. Um, so that's that's sort of funny. Um, but you know, she's played by Juliette Binoche, who of course is like a, one of the great actresses in in the French language and in any language um, sort of you know playing somebody who may or may not be loosely based on herself as an actress um, kind of like she did in their previous collaboration clouds of Sils Maria so between this group of characters this group of, of creative intellectual types you know sort of lefty whatever um, they're just constantly arguing and and discussing and talking about the future of media and the, the fate of, of print and um, what's going to happen. And it's not so much like for the content of the arguments themselves, you know, there's a lot of discussion about blogging and, and, and so a lot of this feels a little old, you know, but it kind of like, it knows that it's not really like invested in being prescient. It's, it's, I think that OCS is just more because of, you see this both in the in the focus in discourse and kind of dialectics and, and conversation, um, and also just in the focus in the publishing industry itself. You know, he's just interested in words and in how words respond to new technology, um, how words kind of are, are, are shaped um, by emotions, the relationship between human, you know, relationships and, and the language that we use. Um, so really, he's just sort of invested in kind of studying that. You know, it's more about the shape of the language. I think than like the words themselves. Um, so overall, you know, I, I, I like this film. It's it's shot on super sixteen millimeter. It's like very warm. Has this kind of muted um, color palette that's that's muted but rich. I, I think you know it's 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 a very nice looking movie. Um, and it also ends with a Jonathan Richman and the Modern Lover song, which I I think is great. Um, ACS has like very hip. 80s 90s new wave taste um you know i get a very like how do you do fellow kids vibe from him um but um i really like jonathan richman uh so i i was happy to to hear that song at the end of the movie um so overall you know i i, I liked it um zach you know i know you saw it at tiff and seemed to like it more than me um i i gave it only three out of five stars on letterboxd um but overall i i i you know, I appreciated what it was, and I kind of appreciated the sort of slippery liminalness of the the, the setting and the the time that it's set in. You know, um, it's not like quite the kind of cringy, groan-inducing movie about Twitter that I was worried about. Um, it's it's, uh, but I, I I just think it's sort of like for me, it, it doesn't really stack up to the kind of heftiness of some of his better, um, more challenging movies. So. Um, yeah, I don't know um, if you wanted to add anything to that. No, no, you're right, because that's I was curious to see it uh, just because I was wondering if it was going to be like this. Technology is the death of everything. This is awful. And everybody was just going to be like, you know, apathetic by the end of the movie. And it's not really that it's kind of I think it treads like both lines on what is useful and what's not um and 
I don't, yeah, like it's it is weird because it is like in this moment that because technology and the internet moves so quickly, we've it feels almost somewhat like ancient history. <laughs> but right. uh, I think that kind of I, I remember seeing an interview that SIS uh, did, and he was that's he was fine with that. Like he, that's what he kind of wanted it to be like um, as this kind of time capsule for that moment. So. Uh, I'll be curious to rewatch it. I remember liking it well enough uh, and really enjoying some of the performances. But <laughs> describing it as the most French movie ever is super true because it's just like everybody is uh, just politically activated and having affairs and drinking and, you know, very high culture. And it's just like, is this like a parody or something? <laughs> Right. And there's also like, you know, there's this sort of running gag about uh, Michael Hanukkah, um, his movie White Ribbon. Um, So it's like a very sort of, uh, I don't know, it's going for a very specific thing and like uh, is about and perhaps catered to a specific class and type of person. Um, But I I think that it's a. genuinely funny in in places and uh you know i think it's a a, a, maybe a comedy of of manners or something yeah that'd be a good way to describe it comedy of errors yeah um cool well it's uh it should be probably going a little bit wider soon but uh yeah check out yeah and um i just um filed my review of it for the nashville scene because it opens in nashville next week so um it will be slowly i think you know creeping across the country throughout the summer very neat uh we're gonna take a short break we'll be back talking 1942's king's row after this Hey, Cinematary listeners, Andrew here. During this break in the show, I'd like to mention that Cinematary does want your money. You can give us your money at patreon.com slash cinematary, where you can chip in a small fee of about $5 a month, you know, the price of a fancy coffee, in exchange for shout-outs in every episode, the opportunity to choose movies we cover on the show, and bonus episodes every month in which we talk about more movies as well as other miscellaneous stuff. In the past, we've just been humbly asking for you to share the show and engage with us, and we would still love for you to do those things. You can tweet us at Cinematary, send us an email, uh, Z-A-C-H at Cinematary.com, leave us a review on iTunes, all that stuff. But Cemetery has grown a ton in the past few years due to the hard work of a bunch of writers, myself included, who haven't been paid for their labor, which is sadly a pretty normal thing. We record things and write things for free. You listen to and read them for free. And the only people getting paid are like Apple and Google, which is depressing. So if you appreciate what we do, if you feel like there's some sort of value being exchanged here and you'd like more of it, help us normalize paying people by going to patreon.com cinematary and chipping in $5 a month. We would truly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show.
we are back with part two of episode 249 of Cinematary. In this part, as part of our Patreon pick series, we're going to be watching 1942's King's Row, as picked by Maggie. Um, it was directed by Sam Wood from a script by Casey Robinson and based on the novel of the same name by Henry Bellamin. Uh, and then the 1890s, friends from both sides of the tracks in the village of King's Row look for love despite the barriers of family and class. Aspiring Dr. Paris Mitchell loves the mysterious Cassandra Tower despite her dark family secrets. Drake McHugh loses his trust fund and must go to work, but when his legs are amputated after an accident, his depression colors his relationship with feisty working class girl Randy Monahan. 20th Century Fox originally sought to buy Bellamin's novel as a vehicle for Henry Fonda. Philip Reed, Rex Downing, and Tyrone Power were considered for the role of Paris. Producer Hal B. Wallace borrowed Robert Cummings from Universal Studios when 20th Century Fox refused to lend power. Ida Lupino, uh, Olivia de Havilland, and and Ginger Rogers were initially considered for the role of Cassandra. Uh, Sam Wood pushed hard for Lupino, saying that she, quote, has a natural something that Cassie should have. Wood believed that de de Havilland, who turned down the role, was too mature for the part, and Lupino also turned it down despite Wallace's emphatic argument saying that it was, quote, beneath her as an artist. Betty Davis wanted the part, but the studio was against it because it was believed that she would dominate the movie, and Davis later suggested Betty Field. Among the other actresses considered for Cassandra were Katherine Hepburn, Adele Longmire, Marsha Hunt, Lorraine Day, Susan Peters, Joan Leslie, Jean Tierney, and Priscilla Lane. Before Ronald Reagan was cast in the role, John Garfield was considered for the role of Drake McHugh, as well as Dennis Morgan, Eddie Albert, Robert Preston, and Francois Tone. Although Gregan became a star as a result of his performance, he was unable to capitalize on his success because he was drafted into the U.S. Army to serve in World War II. He never regained the star status that he had achieved from his performance in the film. Instead, later on, later went on to destroy the country. Wolfgang Reinhardt turned down <laughs> an assignment to produce the film, saying, quote, As far as plot is concerned, the material in King's Row is, for the most part, either censorable or too gruesome and depressing to be used. The hero finding out that his girl has been carrying an an, on incestuous relations with her father, a host of moronic and other (laughs) mentally diseased characters, people dying from cancer, suicides, these are principal elements of the story. The pivotal scene in which Drake McHugh wakes up to find his legs amputated posed an acting challenge for Reagan, who was supposed to say, where's the rest of me, in a convincing fashion. In City of Nets, (laughs) Otto Friedrich uh, noted that the film had a formidable array of acting talent, and that the scene in which he saw that his legs were gone was his, quote, one great opportunity. Reagan recalled in his memoir that he had, quote, neither the experience nor the talent to fake it, so he carried out exhaustive research talking to disabled people and doctors and practicing the line every chance he got. Joseph Breen, director of the Production Code Authority, which administered the Hayes Code, wrote the producers that, quote, to attempt to translate such a story to the screen, even though it be rewritten to conform to the provisions of the Production Code, is, in our judgment, a very questionable undertaking from the standpoint of the good and welfare of this industry. Breen uh, objected to, quote, illicit sexual relationships between characters in the movie, quote, without sufficient (laughs) compensating moral values. 
and also objected to, quote, the general suggestion of loose sex, which carries through the entire script. Breen also voiced concerned about the characterization of Cassandra, who is the victim of incest with her father in the novel, as well as the mercy killing of the grandmother by Paris, also depicted in the novel. And, quote, the the sadistic characterization of Dr. Gordon. The film begins with a billboard promoting King's Row as, quote, a good town, a good clean town, a good town to live in, and a good place to raise your children. In his book, City of Nets, author Otto Friedrich says that beneath the tranquil small town exterior was a, quote, roiling inferno of fraud, corruption, treachery, hypocrisy, class warfare, and ill-suppressed sex of all varieties, adultery, sadism, homosexuality, and incest. In 1955, Warner Brothers planned a remake of the film with Montgomery Clift, Frank Sinatra, Eva Marie Saint, and Ronald Reagan reprising his original role, but it was never made. The New York Times said, just why the Warners attempts the picture of this sort in these times and just why the cores of high-priced artists which they employed for it did such a bungling <laughs> job on that note let's talk a little bit about king's row um the first thing i got i wanted to talk about is it's kind of tr- it, it t- tries to be this somewhat sprawling uh american epic of the, you know the story of the people in this town and it's a very interesting choice in director to have Sam Wood, who I feel like is best known for directing Marx Brothers comedies, directing such epic. Um, what did you What did you make of the look of the movie? I mean, just in terms of you know going back to our previous series that we did and looking at stuff like um, To Kill a Mockingbird in terms of trying to like portray this deeply American town. Uh, what did you make of Sam Wood's direction and kind of how he creates King's Row? I. I actually think he got very good performances out of the child actors, uh, which is surprising coming from me. Uh, (laughs) um, I feel like this movie is kind of, I don't know how this fits into Sam Wood's sensibilities at all, but like, and it's not, it's missing something. I, I think it really wants to be like Southern Gothic, like kind of a oh, small town life, but underneath it's all fucked up. But like, this is a Midwest or a New England town. <laughs> yeah. It feels like it should be trying to be more like Magnificent Ambersons or meet me in St. Louis rather than like, <laughs> like yeah. something Southern Gothic. But, it would, it almost reminded me of like, you know, our town, but with a, blue velvet like here's how fucked up the 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 quaint little american city is or not city the other thing i definitely thought especially because of that billboard although it didn't say it in those words i was like oh this is a sundown town uh like no black people Ye- live here there are some yeah. maids but i that doesn't count uh, it, this, the sign didn't say it but 100 percent, it would it would have well, um, on the the note of the the look of the movie, um, I was honestly, you know, Lydia, you mentioned the performances, and and the performances of the the children were a little weird. You know, there was like a a a, a really intense precociousness to them, but at, at the same time, I sort of like it was way better and, than Mockingbird. <laughs> yeah, like I enjoyed that because the I don't know the children just felt very energetic and like they felt I I had this sense of like these are kids but they have these like very real feelings and and lives and like personal histories you know like when cassie comes like 
up crying and you know she's just like sobbing about having to like stay at home forever uh, I just felt like a kind of a you know a really real person there um, and I also thought that that I was rather impressed um, at, uh, for the most part during that sequence I mean throughout the 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 film you know it's not a bad looking film uh, but really during the opening sequence there's that like oh, oh kind of maybe the opening shot or at least an early shot where it's just sort of tracking down this street um mm-hmm. showing all it these houses like a wagon. Yeah, yeah yeah and um you know I, I i didn't know beforehand but noticed in the opening credits that it's shot by james wong Howe, um who of course you know did so many movies like um yankee doodle dandy and seconds and uh hud and um, the Thin Man and Babyface and just like so many, so many uh, movies, you know, across decades of, of Hollywood. Um, so I feel like it's uh, for the most part a pretty um, good looking movie, but it's just like once it um, jumps to adulthood, it just loses a little bit, I think, in, in the, the qualities of the, the characters and the performances. Like, it's weird to think of children being better than adults, but <laughs> I, know. I kind of, at least for the main leads, I sort of felt that that way. <laughs> 100%. Well, the, Robert Cummings is just so, like, milk toast bland as <laughs> Paris Mitchell. Um, the, then you have the 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 really good as that character. Yeah, the the women characters are just not given anything to do really, and then Ronald Reagan is trying to do his best like uh, Jimmy Stewart impression or something. I don't know what he's kind of trying to do here or trying to evoke. <laughs> um, it it was one of those where I immediately was kind of shut off to what was happening in this movie just because kind of like you were mentioning at the beginning, Lydia, it, it, it is just this very white town. <laughs> like it's just these very, uh, upper middle class. It, like, we're just going to get on this again, upper middle class white people. And you have kind of this dark underbelly, but, uh, you know, you mentioned that scene where they, she, that he, uh, Paris runs over and sees Cassie crying and just the way that he reacts and she, when she's saying, Oh, I'm not going to be at school anymore is not, you know, that's awful for you. It's, well, what about, you know, you're not going to be able to walk home with me and we're not going to be able to do this and do this. And this. I'm just... that's very consistent with his character for the rest of the story. <laughs> and, yeah. So, it's, I was it's just... little bitch. <laughs> Like, it's just like that just seems. Yeah, that just seems to be the consistency through the movie is, uh, you know, especially with like the Cassie character. She's, you know, having to fight really deeply disturbing things. You know, of course, they're they're putting it kind of behind the uh, the, the, you know, the 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 code. Yeah, that's uh, I was looking for in this one. But at the same time, I just didn't feel like she was given much to like. She wasn't just she just wasn't given much to work with. Uh, Lydia, you were gonna say something. Well, even without like, with a co- okay, this movie, I don't know, does not understand psychology. And, like I know it's depicting a time when Freud was a new idea. But, like just Jesus Christ, you lock a kid up, they're gonna be weird. It doesn't matter if like mental illness <laughs> yeah. runs in your family. There's some like nature nurture stuff, and like that's a bad nurturing environment. <laughs> So oh, even without the like code, like kneecapping, I guess what they were allowed to depict, I was like, no, it's pretty fucked up. <laughs> uh, I'm uncomfortable. It's, it's, yeah. And it's, it's also just, it's a very, I felt like it was a very strange 
mm-hmm. narrative structure, how it sort of just kind of meanders, you know. Well, halfway it, through, Reagan's the main character again, like, suddenly. Right, you know, it's this sort of, like, casual, strolling, like, small-town quality, but just about how, like, everything is terrible and messed up for all these people and how they all just, like... You know, you have terrible things happen to them. And Paris, you know, like you said, disappears like halfway through the movie, basically. And Ronald Reagan becomes the main character. And then it just becomes kind of this like second movie where he, you know, loses all his money and becomes a bum. Um, Which like by the time you get to the end, it's like. I had sort of, you know, started to forget so much (laughs) of the stuff with with Uh Cassie and, you know, the like, you know, potential incest and abuse and all this stuff that has like, you know, is is really heavy stuff and it's just like totally forgotten about and glossed (laughs) over. He lost his leg. I'm just kind of like, I don't. Yeah, I just like don't I don't I don't I don't quite even beyond, you know, like knowing that it was, you know, sort of censored and toned down and blah, blah, blah. I just kind of wonder, like, what the general intention was here. You know, was Sam Wood like trying to prove something Um, like proof that he could do something incredibly serious? (laughs) Um, I mean, that's what it kind of reads to me as is like that's why I made the comparison to something like uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, where it just wants to be like this very uh, important moment movie where it's like saying all this important stuff and it's really like capturing all of the uh, the dark underbelly of this town. And I just feel like it's completely missing the mark on all of that. It's it's just it's it's you. Well, I think because it moved away from the kids, right? Like you're too old to not know that life is sad and like messed up things happen (laughs) (laughs) well well you 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 can be sheltered enough in this in the town with the billboard that says this is a great town a good clean town you know like uh, yeah yeah like like uh, of course they 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 learn oh you know life's hard because yeah you you, no what what really was anybody outside of cassie having to overcome up to that point you know it's and that's why it's just kind of like she is so yeah she's dealing with something awful but she's so second nature in terms of where the plot is. I mean this going. movie has There's oh, a... sorry Nathan. <laughs> no no go ahead go ahead. I mean this movie has like two abusive father daughter relationships cuz there's yeah. the other doctor in town who threatens to like send his girl to an insane asylum cuz she wants to rat out his abusive practices as a doctor yeah, and oh just like the movie doesn't give a shit about her either because the climax is Paris, like seriously considering is the right thing to do to send this innocent woman to an insane asylum? No, (laughs) this is not a moral dilemma. What are you talking about? (laughs) Let's sit and think on it. (laughs) Also, also, I don't know about you guys, but there were some, there were some serious, um, homoeroticism yes. going off between Paris and, and Drake. I mean, when Paris shows like, up, he, uh, you know, returns, yeah, returns from his studies in Vienna with Freud, you know, or like a Freud stand-in. Um, 
he they're like you know he comes home and, and sees Ronald Reagan in bed and their their faces are so yeah. close and they like kind of look at each other and and you sort of not really embrace each other but sort of, sort of grab each other for a little bit and it's like a long time <laughs> and they just sort of really linger on them throughout the movie I mean even, even when, when they're, they're kids, kids they're very honestly, affectionate yeah like, <laughs> yeah like. Paris is like uh, putting his arm, you know, Drake or Drake is putting his arm around Paris and stuff, and like I'm gonna show you around, like, and it's just a little like too, I don't know, it's just like <laughs> there, there's some uh, some something. I mean, going it makes sense that Paris That's... falls in love with like a girl who's totally unavailable because her dad locked her up. It's like, well, if you're not really sure you're into girls, <laughs> yeah. like that's a very safe crush to have. <laughs> He's like, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in on the incest family because then I don't really have to. Holy shit! He's oh, that made me so mad too. I'm like, he's not a good dad. He's not a good doctor. Paris, stop it. I'll learn some things from him. <laughs> doctor Towers is objectively a shitty doctor. <laughs> they have, they have terrible oh. medical professions in this town. Um, Nathan, I'm curious to get a little bit more perspective on Reagan because I know you just recently read Jay Hoberman's book about Reagan and his his you know acting uh, career and this one, like I mentioned before, it seems like this is one that people cite as kind of like the turning point for him as possibly being a star. Um, what did what did Jay Hoberman have to say about this in his book? Yeah, this new uh, book is actually coming out in July. Um, I was fortunate enough to snag an advanced copy um and it's called make my day movie culture in the age of reagan um and it's basically both both about films sort of during um reagan's uh various presidential campaigns during the 70s and then his eventual presidency during the 80s you know it's about the movies during that time american movies but it's also about reagan's career in hollywood and and devotes some space to to his own movies um, and King's Road comes up again and again um, you know like you said it's the kind of movie that made him more of a serious actor um, you know he, he proved himself a little bit more dramatically here um, and it's one that was you know really remembered I mean uh, uh, kind of one like really weird anecdote kind of not anecdote but just piece of information is that his his iconic line in this movie where's the rest of me um was the title of of uh, a memoir that he released in the the 1960s i think um so it's just sort of strange you know like how that uh this really disturbing movie is is kind of roped into the reagan mythology i mean the, the movie score was performed at his inauguration um According to Wikipedia, there is no citation here, but according to Wikipedia, John Williams drew inspiration from this film's soundtrack for his famous Star Wars theme. Um, don't know, you know, if that is uh, true or not, um, but, you know, it has this sort of enduring legacy. And it's also a movie that Reagan w- showed to other people, like at the White House in Camp David, you know, when he had visiting luminaries or, or you know, dignitaries from other countries and he wanted to entertain them with one of his old movies. This is often one that he would show. Um and so it's just like it's so it's so weird you know I mean the bedtime you know people always with Reagan the thing they go to I think the two movie things they go to are Bedtime for Bonzo the movie where he's hanging around with a chimpanzee um, 
and Don Siegel's The Killers, which was, I believe, his last movie um, and the only one in which he plays a villain. Um, and there's a scene where Lee Marvin, like, slaps him. Um, so those are two of the things that get brought up a lot with Reagan in movies. Um, but King's Row is, is, is sort of even more than those was, like, Reagan's sort of personal propaganda. You know, like, this is my great achievement as an artist and actor, and I'm going to hold it up and reference it and bring it up again and again to sort of, like, show how, how, how good I am. Because, I mean, kind of before then, and just generally, like, throughout his career, I mean, even Reagan himself, himself acknowledged that his persona was, quote-unquote, Mr. Norm, that, you know, he was just, like, a, a regular average guy, and that was his persona and that he could not really do anything beyond that um and so this is i mean even here like for a lot of the movie he's not really doing anything beyond that it's only until uh he has his money taken away and loses <laughs> his legs like until somebody does something to him you know he's not a very like active character he's just sort of reactive you know and i feel like that's this that's kind of reagan as an actor you know he's not like doesn't have a whole lot of dramatic momentum to his persona innately he just sort of like you know, I don't know. He's just there. He just responds to people and that's it. <laughs> On an unrelated um, note, do you think that uh, Trump does that, but like shows old episodes of like The Apprentice? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I, he could show, you know, like Home Alone 2. Yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> but like just um, that scene and then it just cuts off. Yeah. Um, that, that, that is interesting because, yeah, I think that you make a good point where he as a character is pretty... Uh, nondescript until like his like literally his character trait is I'm poor now and I lost my legs um, and and yeah it, which again goes what it goes back to the point we were making of he like he and Paris as characters just I, I, they, I don't know there again there's just there's nothing very descript about them they're just very uh, privileged sheltered boys who are now men who are uh kind of continuing that cycle and like i think that's what honestly i just found this movie to be aggressively boring because i was just like uh this again i feel Um, really bad for ann sheridan's character (laughs) like she had to kiss reagan and also she's great and (laughs) was not paired with an equal partner (laughs) no not at all like she i feel like just uh, her screen presence innately is like a lot more powerful and uh than 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 his you know like really the only sort of thing that he has to make himself interesting is his hat well he does um, this like <laughs> thing like clicking noise fantastic mr fox <laughs> yeah. oh, and he's just like stop doing that <laughs> <laughs> i think that was I, I i initially sent a snapchat to lydia and was like ronald reagan does this little like twitch click thing with his mouth and it's awful and he does it all the time <laughs> the whole movie and he thinks it's he thinks it's cute and it's not nobody likes it it's awful because he's rich nobody's told him hey that's annoying we're <laughs> like hey shut the fuck up <laughs> you know what i was just sort of uh wondering about this movie i was thinking you know like being adapted from a novel that had come out not too long before it was uh produced and released um you know, I, I'm, I kind of wonder, you know, I feel like there are probably I can't really think of anything off the top of my head, but I feel like there are maybe more recent examples of movies that are adapted from really like popular 
hot books, you know, best-selling books. Um, but then those sort of books that are popular, popular like uh, upon release, sort of fade over time, and then the adaptations of those books don't seem very good um, in retrospect. And I was just kind of this isn't an adaptation, but uh, it sort of led me down this thought path. Um, wondering, do you think King's Row in 1942 was sort of like Sam Wood's Green Book? You know, like <laughs> Peter Farley sort of coming off decades of, of Dumb and Dumber and uh, Shallow Hal was like, I've got to make an Oscar movie. Do you think oh Sam Wood was like, fuck the Marx Brothers, we are winning some awards. Did this with get any- I like that. I love that. I like that theory a lot, actually. Did this get any awards play? <laughs> um, let's yeah. see. Yeah, no, it was it was nominated yeah. for Academy Awards. Let me Ooh, I'll pull it up really real quickly. Theory, Nathan. Best director and best picture. <laughs> oh. Which I feel like this does seem like the sort of, you know, like, I mean, you look at so many of the Oscar nominees from decades past, and they're, of course, like, kind of, you kind of scratch your head and are like, what? Like, you know... And this seems exactly like that. Like it's sort of you know an adaptation, prestige. has all this talent. Uh-huh. You know Claude Rains, but like you know nobody was watching this probably. You know in the in you know. <laughs> well, I guess they were watching it because of Ronald Reagan. But if Ronald Reagan had never become president, um, I don't know how often we would be seeing this movie. <laughs> Around. Well, I was kind of wondering if this, like, if this has any sort of cult appeal, like, beyond just like Ronald Reagan as kind of a weird star present, and it's just kind of a weird, really long, fucked up movie. <laughs> like, could, are, are, is there a small, neat, just like, oh, it's this weird movie. You should check it out because it's messed up and it's got young Ronald Reagan, like. I don't know what the audience for that is. You, you were you were uh, you were sending us uh, a message before we recorded <laughs> talking about like is there a is there like a camp factor to this movie? I mean, so I mean, what did you make what did you make of that when you were thinking of that? Do you feel like there's a camp factor in this that there's almost just like this overplayedness of the uh, at least of the characters and how they're kind of reacting to stuff? Well, I was definitely thinking the Cassandra Betty Field character, like when she's in the throes of her adult mental illness just like screaming and having these like really upsetting monologues i was like is this camp i'm not sure the answer is yes because i think this movie thinks it's doing a very good job of like being serious i don't know like i i don't know if this movie has been reclaimed in that way (laughs) yeah i I feel like you know when you uh, proposed that question earlier i was thinking about it and i feel like there are definitely like camp elements here i mean just the sort of the the um Emphasis to begin with on all the, these like uh, deviant, like immoral things going on in this seemingly quaint place. Um, you know, I feel like a lot of maybe this is just my own assessment. I don't know if other people would agree, but I feel like a lot of movies that are considered campy or otherwise become sort of cult films often have two sort of 
elements that like contradict or, or clash with each other that are sort of pushed together. Like, I've, so the fact that this, you know, is this movie about this quaint, innocent, clean, clean town where everybody's like abusing each other and having incest. And there are all these like suppressed gay feelings to, um, you know, like that you have these sort of things in tension with each other. I feel like sort of sets it up maybe for that kind of appeal. In addition to the fact that it's Ronald Reagan and, um, so just you know, just like other, you know, a, you know, Anne Sheridan, Claude Rains, um, Charles Coburn, you know, they're all like, you know, they're all familiar faces from the the old Hollywood repertoire. So they're all they are they're all stars, but not in like a successful famous movie. So it, I feel like it's like it has those contrasting tensions. It has the the presence of star power, but not like the full, like real authentic thing. Um, and some weird historical an- anecdotes. I feel like it, it, it has some of it, but it's not a full. It, yeah. Like the intention's yeah. not there. <laughs> and I feel like there is maybe now, maybe not as it was originally conceptualized camp, but like now when you think it can't be, there's some sort of like intentionality to it. And like, this did not mean to, uh, I really don't believe it did. (laughs) No, this movie really believed in itself. I think. (laughs) Um, anything else before we wrap up? I want to know where the rest of me is. I've been asking myself that my whole life. Uh, well it's, uh, what did he get run over by? Was it like a train or? Or it was like, yeah. what, yeah, something, some stuff fell on next to the railroad. I don't yeah, know. It was, it was a train. It seemed kind of vague. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, who knows what the rest of you are, Ronald Reagan? I don't give a shit. They're like um, metal <laughs> bars? Uh, I don't know. He's in the rest of, I can tell you where it is. It's in the ground, six feet under <laughs> in the earth. Yeah, he's fucking dead. In hell, he's dead. The rest <laughs> of you is in hell, right? Yeah, he's uh, he's he's trickling down into hell. That's what he's doing. Wow. <laughs> Don't that's, that's a good one. All right. Um, well, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter at handle at cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary, where we post all of the movies that we talked about in this episode also a big thank you to our patrons uh cam chad newsom christopher metcalf maggie matthew lingo ron hayes tyler chandler and whitney rio ross we very much appreciate you supporting the uh website and show uh we're gonna be getting ready for our young critics watch old movies series in a couple weeks but first we hit episode 250 and so that means a nice don't worry don't worry we're not gonna get drunk this time that was not good for anybody (laughs) we might do that again but but like it was it was it was it was (laughs) that might just be for the patrons um but we're gonna do a movie swap like we've done in the past so uh Please, if you've listened to the other, you know, the 50 or 100 or 150 or 200, uh, you probably have a sense of what we'll be doing for this 251. Um, but yeah, if you are not on Patreon yet, please uh, consider supporting Cinematary. Uh, we're about to get ready to record a special. Uh, we're going to be doing a book club. So if you, you know, are reading any 
movie related books or essays or anything related to the world of film and uh, all of that stuff. We're you know we're going to be doing that throughout the uh, at least for the extended period of time uh, indefinitely. And uh, yeah, so join our our film book club on Patreon. So you know, nice little plug if you're interested in supporting that. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for listening, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.